Greetings, Poe fans. Welcome to another edition of Poe Unplugged. I am Carmen Bolden. And I am Jeannie Smith, and we are the Potastic Two. Come Zoom with us into the Unbook Club dedicated to the works of Mr. Edgar Allan Poe. Welcome back, everybody, to our Poe Unplugged, where tonight we're going to look at King Pest. And so um, Jeannie is going to start this discussion this week. I, we talked beforehand and I'm like, Jeannie, you got this one. <laughs> yeah, I think she's I think that's just the underlying jab at me about being the King Pest thing. But I'm just going to say, no, <laughs> I'm not. But. <laughs> no, I think one of the reasons that I would like to take over starting all this off is the premise that we've discovered through many academics that have talked about it, that Edgar Allan Poe meant the King Pest towards Andrew Jackson during the time period that he wrote this. So yeah. that's why, thankfully, we have with us tonight Miss Aaron. I can't remember your last name, Aaron. Sorry. Adams. That's okay. Thank you. You'd think I'd remember that, Aaron I know, Adams, pre presidential. Okay. Hello, Jeannie. Yeah, I know. I mean, <laughs> but she works at the Hermitage. That's Jackson. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. But uh, yeah, Aaron Adams is going to join us here. She actually is the educational director. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Educational director at the Hermitage here in Nashville. So she's going to help us understand from the historical side and the Jackson side and all that wonderful side and has me tie it all in with King Pest. Yes. So we want to start off with, uh, first of all, how many was this the first time anybody had read King Pest? Anybody? Me. This is the first reading? Me. Okay. So we got Keith, we got Will, all those. So for and Jeff, those, Dr. Are, Jeff. Yeah, doc, yeah, Dr. Jeff, sorry. Uh, so anybody want to give a jump in here and tell us your just overall feeling of what the of the writing itself go forth? Who would like to say something? Virginia's I, thinking. Oh, go ahead, Keith. I, I really honestly, I, I read it twice because the first time I went through it, I'm like, what? And then the second time, it, it, I mean, I like his work and everything, but this was just kind of disturbing in a way to me. Yeah. Just, I mean, I honestly, I felt sorry for the two sailors at the end of the story. I mean, even though they were up to something bad at the beginning on what they were planning to do, it was just like, oh, I, well, I was, I was actually, I was like, okay, well, this kind of goes along the line with other things that he has written but I, I just maybe 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 it's just me i i really wasn't as fond of this one as i have been of his other work okay yeah and and i mean i'll agree with you wholeheartedly because the only thing that kept kept me thinking that this was an edgar Allan poe story was the similarities to the two particular seamen at the beginning throughout because I kept going back to the cask of Amontillado. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. they reminded me of the characters being led down into the catacombs kind of thing where they weren't really, um, you know, doing anything, you know, specifically bad, but yes, they were doing things illegal at the time, mm -hmm. <laughs> but at the end they become kind of, I guess, 
not really heroes, but the, you know, they get themselves out of trouble. Uh, and then Will in the chat says the grotesque character is supposed to represent greedy people in power, popular, infamous at the time. Andrew Jackson is the one I know. So, yeah, we're going to talk more about that, Will, because specifically that's, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to bring on Aaron here to help us mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the heritage of the Hermitage and Andrew Jackson. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Erin so she can just give us a little background about what she does, what, you know, everything at the Hermitage, and then we'll get back into King Pest. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, King Pest, this is not the first time I read King Pest. The first time I read it, um, it's been several years ago now, maybe the fall of 2016, but we had a, um, we've gotten in the habit over the last several years of bringing in um, living historians who portray Poe and Irving and Dickens and others to do a performance, um, you know, of their of their um, famous person's work. And so Rob Valella, um, who is no, no longer portraying as Poe, but Google him because the guy looks exactly like um, Valella and he or looks exactly like Poe and he's done ter just terrific work. He's um, great. He, I, I got to see him. Yes. At oh, the Hermitage. Good. Yes. Yeah. He was so good. Um, yeah, he really was. And he had done quite a lot of really in-depth study in Poe and in Poe's inspirations for writing. So one of the stories he mentioned, I remember was King Pest and I'd never heard of it before, but he had set it up as a, he set it up as an allegory about Jackson's economic policies. And I sort of, so I read it at the time and I remember thinking like, what have I just read? I'm not getting economic allegory out of this. Like is, is, is it, is it real obvious to everybody else and I'm missing it somehow. Um, so the answer partly to that was yes, but, but um, so it had been a while since I'd gotten back to rereading it. And so it just, it was good to, to have exercise. So um, a little bit about me though, before I get in there, um, I'm just, I'm the director of education at Andrew Jackson's Hermitage. Um, I've been there for about 10 years now. We typically, um, I typically oversee the K-12 education uh, that we do. So we serve about, depending on how you count, we serve about 35,000 school-aged children a year. Um, we also do the lifelong learning program. So we have a book club, for example, um, ours will be next Tuesday night. And um, so we do that. We do a youth leadership camp in the summer, um, lots of different intergenerational programming. I wrote the audio tour that we're currently using on site. So um, we're just involved in a lot of different things. Our department also oversees the guest services uh, staff. And so sort of your standard daily visit to the Hermitage uh, is going to be, it's going to fall under my department somewhere. Um, and so that's, that's primarily what my folks are involved in. Uh, but my undergraduate degree are in English and in history. So I always love it when literature gets to cross, you know, and they really get to walk hand in hand um, like this. So um, a little bit about Jackson, then kind of at the time of this writing. So this is written in, um, this is written in 1835. By 1835, Jackson is now down to the last two years of his time in office. Um, he was, uh, first took office in 1829, leaves office in 1837 and by September of 1835 in the fall of that year I mean look at the list of things that Jackson has already that have already been accomplished in Jackson's time for good or bad but you know the Indian Removal Act has has been passed that passes in 1830 uh, by 1835 the 
Creek, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw have already been forcibly removed from their homelands or are going now at a rate voluntarily uh, that that satisfies the nation's objectives. Jackson has just signed off on the Treaty of Nui Chota, which is what governs the Cherokee forced removal. Um, Jackson has also fought a pretty heavy-handed war against Nicholas Biddle and the powers of the Bank of the United States um, that is going to end up resulting in um, one of the worst depressions that we have in the United States, and that's the Panic of 1837. Um, Jackson has also uh, had to deal with the nullification crisis, which is South Carolina threatening to nullify federal law and secede. Now, South Carolina is threatening nullification because of the way that tariffs are being imposed on imports and exports. The state of South Carolina ends up footing y'all something like two thirds of the nation's entire tax bill. Uh, and Jackson has really had to kind of keep his thumb down on South Carolina in order to just keep them paying their taxes uh, because he's using that money to pay the national debt. So we are out of debt as a nation by 1835, by the late summer of 1835, the only time and that, that debt freedom holds until Jackson is out of office. Um, so Jackson has already had quite a, a robust and tempestuous presidency. Um, and all of this, of course, is governed largely in the public eye by his personality. Um, Jackson is incredibly gifted intellectually, uh, but he and, and he is gifted enough in that intellectual capacity to know that his personality and his kind of fiery spirit are seen as weaknesses, but they're also seen as strengths in some quarters. So Jackson has, has very much mastered the art of when to use that uh, and when not to. Um, so at this point, people sort of see Jackson, you either still love the guy or you hate the guy, uh, but they certainly still see Jackson as relevant. They see him as incredibly powerful. His influence reaches very, very far. He has a very long reach. Um, in fact, I was um, studying up on a couple of articles um, talking about linking poet or uh, King Pest and Jackson. And so one of the things they mention over and over again uh, is that either you were a Jacksonian Democrat or you were an anti-Jacksonian Whig. And I love how they set that up because there are, we have examples in the collection of um, ballot ticketing, uh, election tickets like delegates of the state legislatures to the various political uh, like democratic conferences and stuff like that. And the ticket doesn't say, you know, I'm voting for the Democrats or I'm voting for the Whigs. They say I'm voting for the Jacksonians or the anti-Jacksonians. Like Jackson often gets a lot of credit for ushering in like the two party system. And he's not totally the one who ushers it in, but that is now strengthening very, very much under Jackson's presidency. But those two parties aren't the Democrats and a <laughs> a legitimate uh, 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 it is a legitimate public party a uh, political party but the uh, the name of that party is not the democrat and the whig or the democrat the federalist or the democrat and the republican it is the jacksonians and the anti-jacksonians so you really are running for jackson or you're voting for jackson or you're voting not for Jackson. <laughs> so that is um, the very powerful reach that Jackson has and kind of the 
power that he wields, if you will, over American thought at the time, you're either a Jacksonian or an anti-Jacksonian, and that's going to trickle out beyond politics. It's going to be in the arts. It's going to be um, in economics. It's going to be, you know, and how you view the future of the nation, right? So either you're a Jacksonian or you're an anti-Jacksonian. Exactly. And I think, especially in King Pest, you get uh, that, to me, you get that understanding with the two characters of the seamen versus the the pests. And it's it's like a total shift. It's like they get invited in to talk about, but the pests are so contrived as grotesque, but at the same time, and they have identifying markers that can go along with what was going on in the Jacksonian times. Uh, like you were saying about the treaty being passed and, you know, the uh, him wielding. One of the things, and I sent this to Carmen um, earlier when we were talking, because one of the things that when I taught before I had to retire, I always taught eighth grade American history. So Jacksonian democracy was a whole big unit that I had to teach. And one of those is political uh, cartoons that came out of it and you know, Jackson was all about those political cartoons. Um, so it was very much when I was reading it, I could see as you were talking, I automatically started identifying each one of those pests yes. with certain um, characteristics, I guess you'd say, yeah. with yeah. the way Poe has them uh, listed, especially the king pest. And, uh, because it talks about how he has a crown. How is it exactly how he he words it? Uh, he, he talks has, about, yeah, yeah, go ahead. He talks about how he's got that like unnaturally large forehead, mm -hmm. you know, prominent and unnaturally large forehead. That his uh, that on on top of his head are these sable plumes. Yes. Um, so very, a very um, exaggerated perception of a period undertaker. It almost mm -hmm. sounds more Dickensian. Like I, I feel like I'm seeing, um, I feel like I'm seeing Jackson presented as, as an exaggerated character out of Dickens. Like Fagin comes to mind for some reason yes. from Oliver Twist. I know mm -hmm. it, it's not exactly the same, but that's, that's just kind of the picture that I have in mind. So you have this like, you know, just as like Fagin is this, as this highly corrupt and corruptible character like Jackson wields that same power like Fagin is is very much corrupting the artful dodger and twist and all of these other you know young and innocent men and Jackson is sort of cast in that same vein um in this way so uh, yeah the um when they when you begin when you get introduced in the story to the grotesque figures um immediately like the, you know they call him Mr. President they don't they don't refer to him as your majesty or the king, you know, they're calling him right. Mr. President, or at least his fellow grotesques are referring to him as Mr. President. Yeah. I love though the reference to St. Andrew, St. Yes. Andrew's stairs. And it's those <laughs> stairs that get, it's those stairs that get, you know, legs and tarpaulin into like that, that broken down, you know, prohibited, you know, desolate, disease-ridden, part of town that they are not supposed to be in but it's saint andrew who gets them there right but then and then they meet mr president so the various features um his characterization of 
um, the young woman, the very small, slight woman who has a leaden, he, he says she has this leaden skin, but then she has these spots of lividity. So she's got mm -hmm. like a very hectically flushed sort of uh, temperament. Like she has the galloping consumption. Um, mm -hmm. So this is Jackson's mm -hmm. niece, Emily Tennessee Donaldson, who has been working, who's been serving as the hostess of the White House since Rachel Jackson, um, Jackson's wife, is deceased at this point. So, and she does have a galloping consumption. I mean, she dies by 1836 and she's very young. She's in her twenties, um, her young twenties. I mean, like 26, 20, 26, 27. Um, she's had several children while at the White House, right? But here she is dying of this galloping consumption, um, which made me a little sad. I really have a lot of respect for Emily Donaldson in many ways. And Emily Donaldson is about the only woman besides Jackson's wife that is able to sort of corral him and um, kind of occasionally, occasionally um, offer Jackson advice that he will listen to. Um, there's not many other women who have that power except for his wife, Rachel, and Emily's about the closest that, that anybody else gets to it. Uh, there's a figure in there though and um, I, ha I think it's the one that he describes as wearing that coat of such garrulous colors like it's just very bright and it's very it's almost gaudy and you mentioned political cartoons Jeannie um mm -hmm. there is of course many many political cartoons made of Jackson during this period and they are a delight and kids you know students when I do this with students um and I say oh we're going to look at some political cartoons they think they're going to be those funny short you know peanuts or the family mm -hmm. circle okay, the family <laughs> circus right? just these little quippy short obvious punchline, you know, kind of comics. They don't, they don't understand cartoon as an art form rather than just the humor than, a, than as a work of humor. Um, so just the depth of detail that these political cartoons of this period pull on. I mean, Jackson is just, is queuing it up for them, right? I mean, Jackson's just constantly giving them plenty of material to work with. But there is a figure in the political cartoons um, named Major Jack Dowling. And mm -hmm. Major Dowling is proposed, I noticed, by a couple of scholars as being the character on whom that, that brightly garrulous coat wearing um, member of the grotesque party is based. And Major Jack Dowling is not a real person. Um, he is a character. He's sort of the everyman character, if you will, that shows up in a lot of, of Jackson's cartoons. So Major Dowling is, um, is meant to be this character that represents the common man of the United States, the, the people of the United States. And uh -huh. so Dowling is, um, Dowling is often used in cartoons as a way of showing where the public stands, just kind of where the common man stands on any of these various issues. So one of my favorite of the cartoons um, is related to the bank war and it's uh, General Jackson fights the many Hydra, many headed monster is the name of it, it's yeah. the Hydra. And so um, there's Jackson is like wailing away at this Hydra with his cane and he's got the big forehead and the hair standing straight up. And he has only two assistants in this. One is Martin Van Buren. who's kind of off to the side and he's holding, he's holding like Nicholas Biddle's head in place. So Jackson can take a good whack at it. But then major Jack Dowling is standing at the back, but he's kind of like ready to duck, dodge, dip and dive, you know, and catch, catch whatever else is coming his way. It, that's okay. 
I've already <laughs> made up then. Um, so it, so I love, I love the characters that are playing a role in the grotesque. One of the other characters is suggested to be Peggy O'Neill Eaton, um, who was the wife of Jackson's secretary of war, John Eaton. Um, John Eaton is a Tennessean. Uh, he meets Margaret O'Neill, who is a, a, a boarding house owner, basically in Washington, a hotelier. And her, not long after she meets Eaton, there's these rumors going around that they're having an affair. All of a sudden, Mr. O'Neill dies under fairly questionable circumstances. It seems like suicide is kind of the accepted option, uh, or um, kind of the accepted option, but it's not for sure. And so people have plenty, people have plenty of complaints about <laughs> Peggy O'Neill, right? That she is just this, she's driven her husband to the brink of, of suicide um, because in less than, it's really just a couple of months and now all of a sudden she's married to John Eaton, who's a member of Jackson's cabinet, right? And Peggy Eaton, when you look at her, her portraits um, is not your standard kind of typical society matron, um, svelte, lovely. She's not, she's not a Dolly Madison you know, who looks like a woman and speaks with authority, but has some grace and some dignity. She's not an Emily Donaldson who's just young and, um, you know, young and light spirited and kind of this fresh energy in Washington. Um, she's Peggy O'Neill and that comes with a lot of baggage. Yeah. So she's yeah. a woman who, uh, you know, Jackson takes up the cause of the Eatons when they're, they're being essentially, you know, disfellowshipped by every person who's standing in Washington, especially the cabinet members and their wives. And Jackson takes their side instead of taking his own niece's side, which is to just pass over John Eaton for somebody less problematic, with a less problematic wife, um, somebody who can help restore some of that dignity to the White House and to the cabinet. Um, and he just, he just won't hear of it. He won't have it. And so he is determined to fight Peggy Eaton's fights for her but in a way that eventually causes almost the entirety of the cabinet to resign. So she is a woman who brings a lot of upheaval with her. Um, so that combination of Jacksonian characters as the grotesques, I find to be a really interesting assemblage <laughs> of people. Yeah. There are plenty of, you know, there are plenty of people within Jackson circle that have some questionable behaviors and characters, but the way that, um, the way that Poe brings these people together, he really brings those people into this group, um, that can have, that an artist is sort of looking for, you know what I mean? Like yeah. that, a, whether they're an artist of language or an art, a visual artist, like these are the people you can do something with, you know? Yeah. Um, so I find that what I find that what Poe is doing by making them the grotesques is really uh, it's a really interesting take on that. And um, Will, I noticed your comment from a little earlier about um, are the grotesque characters supposed to represent greedy people in power? So they are meant to represent very specific people in seats of power um, that are popular and infamous <laughs> in their way. So absolutely, yeah. Um, I don't, the only one that's sort of a stock character, if you will, is Major Jack Dowling. And, but all the rest of them, all the rest of them, it's a matter of interpretation. I don't think of Emily Donaldson, for example, as a greedy person. She's a 21-year-old girl 
whose uncle is the president of the United States and her husband is his chief of staff. So she is there to run the White House. You know, that's somebody's got to do it and that's her job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think about her so much as the greedy one. Um, but certainly with like Peggy O'Neill, Peggy Eaton, like that can absolutely would absolutely be part of the discussion with Peggy. Yeah. And it also, to me, it represented a lot of kind of the take on the spoils system that they were accusing Jackson of and all of that, you know. I don't know the exact cliche quote. I can't remember to the winners reap the, or to the winners go the spoils or something like that. But anyway, so yeah, that, that would be because in my mind, when I, when this is the one thing that I found the most interesting about this particular Poe work is he spent so much time building the visual I mean, he's really good at building visuals, but it's like he gave extra to these particular characters to where you could literally draw them in your mind. Yeah. Because when he was describing King Pest, all I could see was that political cartoon of Jackson as a king. And I can't share it because I don't have sharing. Well, things, but I- Jeannie, I've got it. I went ahead while um, you guys were talking and brought it up. So hold on a second and let me see if I can. Give me just a second. My now, the one thing I thought was interesting was the, the skeleton hanging from the ceiling with his one arm straight out. But, his you know, his skull was empty except for what was lighting everything. So it was like, huh. Was that supposed to be like the light bulb moment and the dude like fried and you can't, you know, he had one good idea and that's all he was allowed is kind of what I was thinking. So, all right. But Can it you guys was, see that? Yeah. Oh, I love yeah. that so much. Yeah. This is the one that um, when I saw the picture, I I read it and I saw this picture because you have like he even has in the story how King Pest is sitting there and he's got, what is it he says that he got, he's got in his right hand. Well, he's but got I a like thigh his, bone as like his he's scepter. Got, he's got a thigh bone yeah. like a sepulcher. And yeah. I saw this and I immediately was like, oh yeah, because he has a sepulcher in his right hand in this particular car- cartoon. And then the crown, you can't really see it with the the open with whatever on top yeah, of it. hold on. Let me... Let me see if I can get rid of that. Um, no, it's not going to let me. Just uh, hit the plus button down there and it will should zoom it in. Yeah, but I've got to bring it down. There we yeah. go. Mm-hmm. There we go. Good. Yeah. See, and that right there, that crown is exactly what I was envisioning when I was reading the story. Yeah. And I was like, I wonder if he included this. Because if I'm not mistaken, this particular political cartoon was published around the same time as he published King Pest. Yeah, this this should not have been too much of a uh, this. I think Poe would have. I think Poe has got the kind of um, artistic vision that was seized on this image very very quickly and very yes. strongly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I was gonna. Oh, I'm sorry, Jeannie. Go ahead. No, go ahead. 
Well, uh, no, I, you were talking about some of the different, no, you, you go ahead, please. You were talking about some of the different elements of the image and I just had a, a brainstorm about one, but you might be about to say it. So go ahead. No, I was just going to bring up how under, under this political cartoon, it has King Andrew the first, and he always kept referring to King Pest the first. Yeah. Uh, born to <laughs> command but underneath there he's got a king who possessing as much power as the gracious william the fourth uh and placed himself and he he gives description on this political cartoon that kind of matches with who the grotesque party is that jackson has at his you know at his table and um so i don't know where where you were going to talk about aaron but i was just going to say that that King Pest was definitely Andrew Jackson, in my opinion. And then um, the coffin, the character with the coffin, I was like, that's unusual. His arms are out, you know, and he's just, he's not really laying down. He's not sitting up. And it's like, yeah, that's just odd, but okay. Yeah. So you, you go, you say what you were going to, Aaron. Yeah, I was, I was just going to mention um, in the cartoon. Can you pull the cartoon up again? Yeah. Yeah. Hold on one second. So Okay, so you know how um, when they talk about when they're describing King Pest, he talks about he's sitting with a femur, you know, a thigh bone um, in his hand. You'll notice in the in the cartoon here that what Jackson has in his hand is the veto power, right? Yeah. So what is where you know he's got the scepter, but he's got the femur, you know, and the and the, the the veto power is. I mean, and, and this is mentioned um, in several places, but what really gives people the idea that Jackson is about to turn into this monarchical, you know, dictator. Mm -hmm. um, one, it did not help that he had the military background, right? That that crushing victory over the British in New Orleans. It does not help that people have seen him victorious on the battlefield. And they think that, you know, that Napoleon has somehow set the model for Jackson. And so of course, Jackson's gonna act the way Napoleon did because that's what you do when you're that kind of general. But what Jackson, what people really are afraid of is that veto power because the way Jackson is using it this is sort of a trend throughout Jackson's life and, and definitely during the presidency, but Jackson always, I can't tell if he makes this happen or if he just sort of ends up being the guy who's always there when it happens. But there are so many constitutional principles of the powers of the executive branch mm -hmm. that are simply untested, right? And, and so, you know, we think about the founding fathers being these very wise and studious and, and uh, intentional planners, you know, and they were, but you can plan all day. And then when the time comes to actually roll into motion, you know, some of the plans you put in place, all of a sudden you begin to see the flaws in those plans in a way that you didn't before when, when it hadn't been tested out. So here is Jackson exercising the veto, which the constitution allows, but he's exercising it in a way that they've never seen before. And so when I think of this thigh bone in his hand, I mean, a, a femur is the largest and like the strongest bone in the human body mm -hmm. when you could bludgeon somebody with a thigh bone and what they're feeling like is that jackson is bludgeoning them with the veto threat um the bank i think the most arguably i think the most important veto in american history is when jackson vetoes the charter of the second bank of the united states um because he tells them like i, I i'm not going to veto bills just because just from administrative principles. Um, so Jackson's predecessors had had very much dealt with the veto as if it was a, 
an administrative tool with a flaw that was going to lead to more confusion than help. And maybe the logistics of it weren't going to be so easy. So they would veto it under those circumstances, send it back to Congress, tell Congress to keep working on it, and Congress would send it back and they'd approve it. So the vetoes were more about almost like a proofreading tool, if you will, until Jackson comes along. And Jackson says, I'm not going to be using the veto this way. I'm going to veto something if I feel like either it violates the Constitution or it does not serve the the broad citizenry to the best of its ability, right? So Jackson yeah. signs a veto 12 times and an mm. eyebrow raising, hair raising, hackles raising 12 times in his entire eight years in office. Um and, you know, I always set that against like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who signs a veto more than 300 times in his presidency. So, you know, it's it's that bludgeoning power of the veto that Jackson is holding on them to. And then, of course, I love that he is standing on the documents. Of course, one is the Constitution. Um, so, of course, he's just ripped up the Constitution altogether. We're going to be a monarchy now. Right. That's what this image suggests. But the other document that's underneath Jackson's feet is a statement about um, internal improvements in the nation, which is essentially code for infrastructure, right? Um, right. Canals, waterway improvement, railroads, all of this is burgeoning technology under Jackson's time. And Jackson has very strong feelings about what the government should and should not be involved with when it comes to internal improvements in the country. So there are things that he approves them to do, things that he you know, dissuades them from doing. And so I'm thinking about St. Andrew's stare, which leads them to, again, this really, you know, impoverished, beat down, disease ridden, um, crime infested neighborhood, right? And this is, I think these are St. Andrew's stares, right? Is this desire to, to turn over the internal improvements of the nation to the state governments, to the local governments, that that is not an affair for the, for the federal government to take on. Um, so I love that. Like, and all of these are brainstorms, by the way, because I'm sort of looking at this image in a new light, but, um, I hadn't thought too much about that being the internal improvements, um, document down there. And now all of a sudden I'm kind of, kind of thinking of it, of it a little bit differently. Yeah, that makes sense. It definitely does. And that's one of the things about the National Bank of, you know, that was Alexander Hamilton's baby, you know, was the the idea of having a federal bank, having, you know, because that's how we had the first bank was Andrew, was Alexander Hamilton and his. And then like you were talking about the infrastructure of trying to coordinate by getting um, roads built by, you know, train tracks, all that kind of stuff was happening. And Jackson very much was like, eh, that should be handled by the states. I don't, you know, the government shouldn't do that. That That's just too much. So when I'm thinking of it in Poe's story, and like you said about the St. Andrew stairs and about going into this, this pestilent ridden part of town and they end up going into this creepy because I love how Poe actually gets the two seamen to go into this area is because they hear someone laughing inside. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they go in there. Plus they're escaping from, you know, trying somebody chasing them because they ran out on their bill. So there's who are the first dine and dashers or would that be uh pub <laughs> crawlers and, and, and levers. Uh, so, but so when they go in there, um, 
I love how he makes a point of being very specific about certain things. You know, the femur bone, yeah. yes, beating people over the head. And like you said, he used that veto power on the second bank to the point to where it got to where they couldn't overpower his veto because yeah. they couldn't get enough votes. The Senate so, did not right. have enough votes. Right. And Jackson and Jackson didn't has um, Jackson had Jackson let it be known there is no way you can go back and 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 rewrite this bill that I'll approve it like I'm going to yep. say no on principle you know and so <laughs> like what is how are you I you know what the possible Jackson just shuts down any possibility for compromise in that way because he objects to the bank on constitutional footing um yep. it has to do with the way in which Congress is delegating their authority to somebody that has not been vetted by the people of the United States. So, uh -oh. you know, so who are, um, uh, Oh, I think a cat knocked something over. So yeah. you know, who are, who are, um, where's this art? If there was an argument that was going to sway Jackson, where in the world would it have come from? You know, I, I just can't even envision what that was. So Jackson has let them know you can't possibly bring me this bill in any form, in any way that I'm going to approve of it. So you might as well just stop trying, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's, and it's pretty, it's pretty overwhelming. I had a student once ask me if Jackson ever had a most stressful year. And I loved that question. I, I love the way that the student put it and kind of their insights to it. And I thought about it for a second and I said, it's 1832 because he's running for reelection. Uh -huh. He's got the bank to deal with and he vetoes the bank, right? I mean, it's July and the reelections in November. Um, and he's got South Carolina to deal with, um, threatening to secede. And that's all in a reelection cycle. So uh, 1832 was rough. <laughs> it was real rough for Jack. Yeah. I think. Um, yeah. And I think it was a bad time. See so many threads of that in this story, uh, which is really, which is really interesting to me. Yeah. yeah. I, I like the setting that, you know, it's in Will Wimble, the undertakers, like the basement you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, the apartment is the, it's the basement of where the undertaker lives. And so it just adds that, you know, extra creepiness um, to the whole situation. And with Poe describing, you know, the skeletal remains and also, you know, some, I think, what did he say? You know, some flesh torn off some bodies and, you know, with the the plague being present and just all the the pestilence you know existing um one of the articles i looked at um comparing the two was um they they kind of the person that wrote the article kind of perused that this was the precursor to the mask of the red death because this was published in 1835 mask of the red death was 1842 and it's like hmm Poe could have kind of thought of some of those elements to put into Mask of the Red Death. Um, I personally think this story could have been fleshed out even longer than it was and more depth given to like, because there were so many characters, which Poe normally doesn't have this many. It's like, it, you know, this would be an interesting play, in my opinion, if this was a play. I don't know. What are, thoughts anybody I like how you're talking about it could have been longer, but at the same time, to me, Poe left it open-ended at the end to have a sequel. Yeah. You know, because, yeah. and that's one of the things that we were talking about. It was like King Pest 
um, legs, tossed him into the open trap door and slammed it shut on him. So basically threw him in a hole in solitary confinement at the very end when he was trying to save Hugh. Uh, and then he like takes care of all the rest. The coffin guy is floating off because mm-hmm. they had dumped all the wine out or whatever they were drinking. And then what really made it interesting is as Legs and Hugh are running out, Legs has grabbed uh, the Duchess of Anna Pest. Yes. And is carrying <laughs> her out the door and they take off with him. So I'm like, oh, look, so it's Annabelle Lee they left with. <laughs> so they took off and i'm like oh i wonder if they're taking her back to the sea because they are yeah. seamen i was like That's okay true. <laughs> why out of everybody they took off with the duchess of anna pest but yeah. okay so i've wondered i wondered if um a couple of things one you know, Poe is, and y'all are the experts, not me, but where does 1835 fall in Poe's career? Is that the middle, the beginning? Where Where are we? Let's That's say. More past, I mean, it's past his his mil- military and West Point days. And it's, yeah. I think he was, wasn't he back in Baltimore by this time? Let me, let yeah. me look it up real quick because yeah. off the top of my head, I can't remember. Uh, Okay. Oh, okay. So, so Dr. Thompson, he's Grabbing at least been for the last like 15 years of his life. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that, yeah. That's, that, yeah. Okay. So that, that kind of tells her what I generally, what I needed to know, which is that it may be that Poe, I mean, we're the presidency at the time did not have term limits, right? Like a term oh. was four years, but you could go indefinitely, right? Which is exactly what Roosevelt does. So you know, maybe maybe uh, Poe left it open ended, thinking like the guy's presidency is not over yet. You know, um, so he's always you know like um, every good every good TV scriptwriter, right? Like there's always like this, even if you know it's the end of the series, there's still some little hook that they could build on if they had to. You know, if right. demand calls for it, there's always a little hook down there somewhere that you could build on if you had to. And so it, yeah. I mean, is it, is it possible that Poe is leaving himself open if, if this is going to become a series one day, if, 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 if Jackson is going to give us so much to work with, <laughs> you know, yeah. as, as writers and as, if, if Jackson is going to give us so much material to work with, then, you know, why close it off? Why not just leave in one little hook mm-hmm. that he could use to, to, to build things up again? Yeah. Um, I would have loved to have seen uh, uh, Poe take up this subject again in 1837 jackson's out of office van buren is in but that's when all of the economic fallout of the bank is it it just kind of comes crashing down on the nation Mm -hmm. um and to the best of my knowledge you know jackson jackson never once in deciding whether or not he's going to uh sign off on the bank charter or whether he's going to veto it he never once has a conversation with himself that I know of, or with any ec- economists or financiers to say, you know, if, if the bank collapses like this, if, if I, if I refuse to, to renew the charter, what happens to the bank? Okay. I want to put the money in state banks or pet banks, which gives Jackson an executive branch, a tremendous amount of power. 
what if I do that? Like, what are the financial implications? Like, how are the practicalities of that system going to be felt across the nation? Jackson never does that. And then all of a sudden here, you can't just yank all the government's money out of the bank in one go and scatter it to the winds. What do you think is going to happen? Right. And so, and, and it's exactly what does happen, which is that we're in a, a profound depression very, very quickly, which of course, Van Buren, you know, bears all the, the, uh, wait for all out um, yeah so it's oh yeah you know very unfair to van buren that although van buren was kind of jackson's yes man so i mean he he gets a share of it but um yeah. you know but he never even he never even talks to him. there's a there's a story that a co-worker of mine likes to tell which is when a group of new york bankers comes to the white house for an audience with jackson and they ask you know they they ask for a bit of his time it's jackson it's van buren it's these you know, New York financiers and they sit down and they get about, you know, three sentences out of their mouth and Jackson just lights them up, you know, kind of tearing up one side of them and back down the other um, over constitutional standards, right. And constitutionality. And they eventually are just so browbeaten by Jackson's demeanor that they sort of slink out of the office, you know, saying, I'm sorry, Mr. President, we'll never bother you again, Mr. President, you know, forgive us for wasting your time, Mr. President. And then as soon as they leave, Jackson turns to Van Buren and says, I handled that really well, didn't I? It, it, it's, Jackson doesn't even want to have the discussion. It, it, he's not even going to have the discussion of what's going to happen. Yeah, and he fits very well, especially in that time period and everything that's gone through. I think part of his uppityness, we'll call it at that point, uh, is because he has been so successful in his military career and he's used to calling the shots basically mm -hmm. because I mean think of it the, he's like the he's like the only president since Washington I think was president that had any military experience that got elected am I wrong I can't remember because um, James James Monroe James Monroe did yeah. um, right. he yeah. did he was sort of Washington's right hand man at the Battle of Trenton but Monroe yeah. was I mean, Monroe was very young during the Revolution he was not mm -hmm. but he but he had already an established relationship with Washington and and kind of Washington's yeah. right hand man um, Madison, I guess I was thinking more on the upper echelon you know how. Washington was a general and then Jackson was a colonel. You know, I, I was talking that level. I'm not as actual military, military. Because yeah, Monroe, yeah. he was so, he was young and he was enlisted and was helpful with right. Washington. So Yeah. You're right, you're right. All the all the rest of the all the rest of Jackson's predecessors are uh with the exception of Washington and Monroe's <laughs> teenage early adulthood service, but they're all engaged in diplomatic efforts. Um, yes, Jefferson yeah. and Adams and Quincy Adams, you know, they're all, they're all uh, diplomats or they're prosecuting the war league, you know, through legal channels. <laughs> and it, so they're not battlefield soldiers. Yeah. I think for Jackson though, even more than the, than the generalship, which just kind of speaks to his, his overall demeanor is the fact that Jackson is reelected by one of the largest margins Popper. in history. Like it's a landslide. I mean, he just mops the floor with with Adams in the twenty eight election, but then with Clay in the thirty two election, where he is, you know, excuse me, he's fighting the bank, he's fighting nullification, 
Indian removal is being enacted and people are all up in arms about how that's going. And, and Jackson still wins by one of the largest margins in history. And that's a mandate. That's when you use the word mandate, right? Yeah. That, you know, it clearly the people want Jackson to do, clearly they approve of what Jackson is doing, right? Yes. And so Jackson just, okay, this is what the people want me to do. So doesn't matter if you're a New York financier who's trying to tell me to stop because all this is, you know, all of our economy is going to go south. It, it doesn't matter. The people have said they want me to do this. So this is what happens. This is what we'll do. Um, yeah. I think the only people who are reelected with a higher margin than Jackson, uh, of course, Washington never counts, <laughs> but no. uh, we never count Washington, but um, Lyndon Johnson yeah, uh, real, and James Monroe mm -hmm. are the two um, that are elected with the, with the highest, I think they're the only two higher than Jackson in their um, election margins. Yeah. Okay. And and then you also have to take in consideration in the early parts where the, you know, the electoral college was more prominent in some areas than the popular because they kind of went hand in hand more than later years where it's like, okay, as we grew as a, as a nation and the electoral college came more into play rather than more popular vote, it kind of got a little more skewed. In, in that area yeah. because that that was one of the things with the jackson and the corrupt bargain is what happened with that was because it was like okay wait a minute henry clay and um who was the other one john quincy john, adams. john quincy adams yeah jq you know the son <laughs> you know i'm just trying to quincy it makes it much easier quincy <laughs> yeah. okay I always, I would always go with the kids. I just call him John Q because it was like, yeah. hey, he's the Q man. Uh, well, I, I looked up um, in 1835. Poe had moved back to Richmond because he was the editor of the Southern Literary Messenger after he won the Saturday Visitor Award for um, message or MS found in a bottle, and so. Okay, oh, I, I was about to say that, but oh, you, thank you. you. <laughs> yeah our minds yes 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 well what are awesome. some other thoughts on this story did you like it did you hate it like what I, i'm just i'm anxious Is to it hear wrong that i laughed a lot no because it's satire we you know <laughs> this was total total satire on post part it's a yeah. rollicking story. Yes. <laughs> I, I will admit the very first time I read this, I think I was maybe right out of high school, maybe going into co my first year of college. Yeah. And I was like, eh, eh, eh. Yeah. You know, not my favorite, but read it again for this. And I kept laughing. I'm like, what was I reading a long time ago? Because I don't remember like three quarters of it. And I was just like, I just kept laughing. I, I really, I I quite enjoyed the descriptions of the various pests. Yes. They were quite, quite colorful. <laughs> you, yeah, get a, and you get a good image. <laughs> I, I really liked that his descriptions, you know, like I think Jeannie mentioned earlier that how much extra he put into it but he he described everybody before he gave them their names 
And it's it was just very interesting that he didn't say this is King Pest or describe. And that was the, you know, King Pest. It he didn't say the names. It was like a list after he described everybody. And that's just very different. It's like putting in, it's like he wanted to make make them out to be as grotesque as they possibly could. And then let me just add their names all are pest. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah, I kind of um, took it as like silly horror, kind of like the evil dead before the evil dead to oh, me. Yeah. I enjoyed that's like a, this. That's a good kind of like this silly. But the descriptions ah, were great. Yes, I, Micah. Sorry. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you see Micah's comment? That's yes. awesome. Yes, <laughs> Micah, that is spot on. Spot on. Nice. Yeah, the mad tea party. The the that first time I ever read this was um I I was reading a few stories, like I, I just decided to sit down one day and just read some stories. And I had I think I read this one after I wrote I wrote. Um, I'm reading at the same time. I read how to write a black word, Blackwood article, which is also a great story. And eventually we'll read that one if you haven't read it. Um, and I think, let me make sure the, um, yeah, Psyche, is it Psyche Zenobia is the main character in it. And yeah. kind of like what we were talking about with it, like Jeannie said, it seems like it's open for a sequel Poe did use her character in another story after How to Write a Blackwood um, article. And she's uh, got a lot of charisma and just a great like character. It. And I'm trying to remember which story it was. I and, just went blank because you said it. And I was like, yeah, I was gone. <laughs> and just a little, just a little, if you like James Bond, there is a Dr. Uh, Money Penny in that, in How to Write a Blackwood article. Not just. <laughs> throwing that in there um i'll remember what it is and it doesn't really like necessarily it's i think it may be a predict no a predicament virginia is that it uh i think hold on let me uh shoot um uh but anyway, oh gosh, while that's we're, gonna while drive me nuts yeah while we're, hold on. while we're thinking <laughs> what um what other thoughts you guys had well, Will said he hated that he left it open-ended, which I agree. Yeah. Because out of all the other stories that I think of Poe, there's not any that I've had up until that point not been, you know, happy with it being concluded. Yeah. Being left without some closure, some type of closure. Mm-hmm. Where with this one, it's like... I was still, as I was reading it, when they were leaving and they were carrying uh, the Duchess of N and Pest, and I'm I'm waiting, and all of a sudden it ends, and I literally was checking to make sure that that was the ending. Yeah, I was making sure that my phone hadn't downloaded to some, uh, you know, it stopped downloading, or I was on the one of the websites, and I was like, it was the Poe Museum website, I think it was, and I was mm-hmm. like, did they not upload the whole story? Am I missing something? But yeah. no, that was the ending, and I'm going, well, that bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? You, you, you know, dump King Pest in a hole. You flooded everybody else out. You know, you destroyed well, all them. You got poor, you know, poor Duchess Anna Pest being kidnapped by this crazy <laughs> person and his little sidekick, which, by the way, let's talk about those two particular characters very quickly. 
the description that Poe makes <laughs> of you know, what? who? Legs. Oh, yeah. You know, legs. The, yeah, what? legs. The tall guy <laughs> that pretty much is like a walking skeleton. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then you got the little short guy who is the sidekick of Hugh, who he uh -huh. even makes a description that he's not even four feet tall. Yeah. I mean, did, did I not? I'm like, but then every time it's like the worthy Hugh, you know, and then it's like the, I even, I think in one point he even said gallant legs, which I thought was ironic. Cause I'm like, really? Cause I kept thinking legs is a giraffe. And then you got little Hugh running beside him as a sidekick. Cause I'm like, Oh, I'm going to think of Madagascar right now. You know how you have the really tall giraffe. Yeah. Who's the hypochondriac. That's kind of what I'm looking at with legs. And then you got the little bitty koala bear looking thing who is, you know, King Julian's right hand person yeah. and is always getting in trouble. And that brings me up to where it all went haywire is when the little guy starts laughing at King Pest. <laughs> you know, and, you know, just kept laughing at him and saying, oh, you know, he was more on the side. He says, nah, I'm not going to see that one. I'll be meeting the devil and be having a party kind of thing. Yeah. And so, but yeah, I mean, anybody else get kind of a weird description when he was describing legs and Hugh going, this is really strange. Well, and it, it does remind me of a lot of the, you know, Disney movies where you have the two little sidekick for comic relief kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, one article I looked at compared legs with the elongated face and the bulging eyes to uh, John C. Calhoun. And so, which I thought was weird because he wasn't one of the pests and if you know which it would have made more sense if he was for being vice president yeah but by 1835 calhoun is not vice president no so, that's true um, that's Van true Gurney. so the the character that he described as having like the jaws that kind of rested like bladders that rest on his cheek that made me think of van buren more okay calhoun, Cal, I mean, at Jackson's death, he says that he only had two regrets in life. One is that he doesn't shoot John C. Calhoun and the other is that he didn't hang Henry Clay, you know, because of, because mostly because of Calhoun's machinations in South Carolina. Yeah. So I, it did make me think of Calhoun, but mostly what it really made me think of was um, Laurel and Hardy. Um, you yes. know, so you had, you know, so you had Laurel and Hardy, right? Where one, I mean, you had like the big guy and then like the tall skinny guy who's kind of like stupid and never talks and is always, yep. you know, Laurel's always, am I getting this right? Laurel's always, no, Hardy's always having to tell Laurel what to do, you know, because right. it's like, he can't figure it out for himself, but you can't fault Laurel for his, you know, his uh, faithfulness to his friend or his, his willingness to like fight the good fight or his willingness to, you know, support his buddy, even when his buddy's kind of mean and picks on him. So the scene um, when they decide to flee the tavern without paying for their ale, what I love the humming stuff. I love that. I love that term for it, but you know, they refuse to pay for it or they decide they're going to slip without paying, but it takes, um, it takes Hugh, you know, a couple of times to even find the door. Cause he says he keeps running into the fireplace and like hitting the back wall and, uh, and then it takes him a few times of doing this before he can then um, 
kind of get himself going the right direction, you know? So almost that sort of slapstick physical comedy angle of it was, uh, I thought really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, it, it fit very well. Uh, Cause I was like, he's starting it off as, as a, as kind of a slapstick humor satire, mm-hmm. you know, cause I was getting the, like you said, the Laurel and Hardy vibes, the, mm-hmm. you know, just thinking of the, the two opposite ends, I guess is what I was thinking with legs being as tall and lanky. And, you know, you have the one extreme with the tall lankiness and then you have the very next extreme with the very short and stodgy looking. Right. So it's like he was covering both ends of a spectrum type of thing. So it was just, it started out weird. And then they knew and what was so funny is they knew they didn't have any money to pay for their ale at the tavern, but they were drinking it anyway. But, it, you know, and they tried to run away. And like I said, it was a bar and leave instead of a door dash or a dine and dash. Dine and dash. Yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, it was. And then poor Hugh, he couldn't, you know, it was like, he's one of those you can think when you lay the comment down of they couldn't find their, their way out of a paper bag. They were that idiotic. Yeah. <laughs> so, that was the mm-hmm. description I got the most from Hugh. Um, that, but one other thing I was going to add too. um, now Poe did adapt this story. Like he edited it multiple times and the original with 1835, he has the quote right after the title King Pest the first, a tale containing an allegory. And then he's got a quote, the gods do bear and well allowing Kings, the things which they abhor in rascal routes. And this is from Buckhurst's Tragedy of Ferrix and Porrix. And Ferrix and Porrix, um, this is from a Renaissance play where these two characters were sailors at the time of Edward III's reign. And so um, I think there's that tie-in of the allegory to um, Tarpaulian and um, Legs. Yeah. And with George III being andrew jackson is there is there again and y'all are the poe experts but is there a i did try to find sort of the smoking gun where i could see poe saying oh yeah guys i'm writing this allegory and it's about andrew jackson right i was trying to find like the smoking gun just to link Mm -hmm. all this together i didn't find one are y'all are y'all familiar with something in that way no, no. And I I looked at several different articles. I didn't necessarily read every single one, but I spot checked different things to find different pieces. Um, the Ferrix and Porrix kind of connection was prevalent in many articles that I, that I looked at. Mm-hmm. But um, one article, and I don't really want to go down this rabbit hole, and Jeannie and I talked about it, and it was somebody that while Trump was president compared... Yeah because of uh, Trump saying that, you know, he was like Andrew Jackson comparing Trump to Jackson to King Pest. Like they were all like this triangle of, you know, and I I thought that was really, really interesting. And I, and again, I didn't even finish reading the article because I was like, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. (laughs) Right. Right. And it did feel Mm -hmm. like a rabbit hole. And there were a couple of, even with the, um, 
even talking about Ferrix and Porrix, it's it the Ferrix and Porrix is about Edward the Third dividing his kingdom between his two yeah. sons. Mm-hmm. And he said the the author of that article said, as if it should be evident to everybody, well, obviously Jackson had the same problem. Like somehow Jackson was trying to like divide power, divide the country, mm-hmm. divide I it, it wasn't it seemed like quite a take on yeah the connection that just didn't to me it just didn't hold up so I if he was it, trying it to was loose that, was yeah it was like a few to me a few elements compared you know like mm-hmm. in the appropriate way and then right. it kind of got like convoluted it was like a yeah. little bitty you know yeah. little bee spider web hanging there so yeah well the one thing about Poe and the writings and the supposition that he is attributing certain characters to certain real life people i don't think he's ever like when he he hates transcendentalists but i don't think he ever actually came out and used particular names in his stories for the transcendentalists i mean he alluded to them a lot and you could make that connection so but it was like he lets his opinion be known but it's because here's where it comes to me. It's like the law and order. When you begin the law and order thing, it says the names have been changed to protect. Them. That's kind of the way I feel when I read Poe. It's like the names Sorry, have been changed. And, you know, <laughs> so to protect the, the real people he's writing about. But in essence, the way he has his description set up, I think he is saying it, but he's not owning up to it in real life, I guess. Right. So, but, uh, yeah, one thing is, is I think that we could tear this story to pieces a lot, especially between the historical aspects of the Jacksonian democracy and Poe and his real life, because I talked to Carmen earlier saying that, you know, even though Poe originally was poor, when Alan received his inheritance and he became one of the upper echelons and he was seen as being an affluent person i can see him not being a proponent of jackson at all based on the spoil system and everything and about how they they you know the well the affluence of the day did not like how jackson was affecting affecting their world uh so i think that might have been another instance of where he he may have been on the side of not a Jackson supporter kind of thing. So, but. All right. Um, well, did, did we like this? Did we? I liked it. It was yeah. okay. I, yeah. it, like I said before, it wasn't my favorite. Yeah, me neither. But I, it, but I do agree the descriptions of the pests were amusing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It definitely. I, I like it definitely for satire. It's not one of my favorites, but mm-hmm. I, in a, in many of the articles that I looked at about it after I reread it today was it, it's one that no one hardly ever reads. And so it, yeah. it's, it's good to keep some of those things prevalent present, you know, within the realm of what Poe wrote. Because it's mm-hmm. it's beautiful satire when you just get right down to it. Yeah, yeah. 
Mike is taking a jab at you, Jeannie. I know. Guess what I, I had. Guess what <laughs> I had. Laugh, Jeannie. Guess what she had to do on the Thanksgiving episode. She uh-huh. had to read a quote from the mummy story. <laughs> yes. She tortured me with it. I she offered, made me. I offered to read it and she goes, no, it'll be better at the end. And I'm always the end quote. Exactly. <laughs> so I, oh, I, <laughs> I sucked it up and I, I, I did it, but I didn't like yeah. it. But actually, Mike, I was actually going to say that as far as this story goes, I liked it a heck of a lot better than I did with some words with a mummy because I still going to take some words with a mummy and, you know, have a nice bonfire. Um, yeah, Erin, uh, she hated that story and we still give her a hard time about it. Yeah, yeah. As, just, often as, 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 we can. as Yes. As often as we can. Oh. We love you, Jeannie. Yes. 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 That's okay. Well, that's um, awesome. So we, we had kind of uh, said, you know, what we were reading up through this month, but you guys don't know what we're going to be reading next month and a little bit later than that. So um, in December, one of our Gothic guests, um, we, we're, we're starting to get lots of Gothic guests and we're so excited to be doing all these interviews with different people. But one of them is going to be, and Jeff knows him, um, Mark DeWidziak, I know this is backwards, but um, he wrote The Mystery uh, the mystery of Mysteries, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. So Mark is going to be joining us in December on Poe Unplugged. We're also going to be doing an interview with him um, very soon. But he, um, he wanted to read The Cask of Amontillado. So that's what is on December's mm-hmm. reading list. And um, at, and he also, because there's several things that he likes and he does acting himself, he is going to do a special recitation of something for us. And I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's going to be amazing. So that's going to be like our little finale for December's Poe Unplugged. Well, Sounds yeah, great. The Widziak is uh, very, very talented and brilliant. And his new book like that you just held up is outstanding. Yeah, I'm uh, reading very, it right now. Good. Yeah, it's 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 great. His writing is beautiful. So, um, and then in January we're going to be doing murders in the Rue Morgue. Oh, good. And so um, we're working on uh, somebody possibly coming on for that uh, Poe Unplugged. Um, I, and I haven't gotten confirmation yet, so I don't want to say whether or not he's going to be joining us. So um, we haven't totally decided what we're doing February and beyond. But um, again, if you guys, you know, we had already opened that up. If you guys have suggestions or want to lead a Poe Unplugged, just let us know because um, we're open to it. And, you know, you guys are awesome and are always with us. And we just want you to you know, do the Poe things. <laughs> and we especially want to thank Erin for joining us yes. because we truly enjoyed yes. our discussion with yes. her. You added um, so much. Yes. yes. Thank, you. thank you. Very, very interesting. Yes. Yeah. And Lynn, Linda, oh, thank ahead. you for Linda. Thank you for joining us. Also, um, yes. she is one of, um, 
the uh, Jackson's Library regulars on their book club. So check out, I was going to say, if you go to the Hermitage um, Jackson's Library card, you can see their book club as well. They, you do, Erin, the first... It's the first Tuesday night of the month. Okay. We start at seven. We just do it via Microsoft Teams. So, okay. and, it's, and it's discussion. So just very similar format. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Octo um, December's book is The Cotton Kingdom. Um, it was written by Frederick Law Olmsted. It's one of his earlier works where he is um, traveling through the South talking about cotton economy, slavery. Um, so that's December's. And then... January's is um, Joshua Rothman's book, Reform, Reforming America. So talking about just the zeal for reform efforts and, and so forth. Um, we've done Poe. So if, if you're not familiar with our book club, we do, we do a variety of work, period works, as well as, you know, secondary works. Um, we do, we've done poetry. We do short stories. We do novels. We do historical works. Um, so we just do a little bit of everything. Um, one thing that we're going to try this year is like doing like these little mini arcs where we do like say three books in a row, kind of on the same subject or, you know, mm -hmm. on a related theme and then, and then jump to something else. So, but yeah, cool. you're welcome to join anytime, please. Yeah. Cool. And I, I've, been, I've been on it and, um, it's been great. It, it's been really, it's, it's a lot of fun. Good. A lot of fun. Well, I am super excited to get to know your Poe book club. So I'll have to be back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Welcome. And um, yeah, anybody on your book club wants to come on, just let, you know, tell them about it and have them join. Cool. All cool. right. Anybody else have anything? I think, Jeff, did you want to? Yeah. What What is the date for oh, December? Is it I, 19 I or 26? Yes, it's going to be December 19th. I was afraid to move it to the 26th because of, you know, um, that was just way, even though it's the day after Christmas, I just felt like people are going to be possibly traveling and that kind of thing. Um, murders in the room org will be January 30th, the last Tuesday, just like the normal, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know, I just wanted to make sure we weren't hitting too many people's, you know, family plans and things. So. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, All right. thank you, everybody. This was so much fun. Thank you. Happy holidays. Good to see everybody. Yes. Yeah, yes. everybody. Yeah. All right. Bye. Yeah. Bye. 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 Bye